what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey folks, if you like listening to us, then you're going to love Chad Mackin and Jay Jack, who are coming to Australia to do their Dog Training Conversations tour of Australia. They're going to be in Australia for May, first three weekends in May, hitting Sydney, then Brisbane, then Melbourne. If you want to buy tickets to that, please head over to my website, mskennels.com, hit the Seminars tab and follow the Bouncing Ball to buy your tickets there. Thank you. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name is Glenn Cook and joined in studio is my co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Today, we're going to start talking a little bit about some of the tools that we use in regular training. Yeah, just have a conversation about the stuff that we use, why we like it or why we don't like it, what we use it for. Just had a few requests about the specifics of tools and so we thought we'd just have a chat about it. Hmm. Yeah, so one of the good things about the show is that now that we're getting a lot of feedback from people, people are actually saying, well, what do you think about this? And over the course of time, your opinion changes a lot on what you think is relevant and what you don't. I think that's one of the great evolutions of training is that you'll find something that works really well for a while. And the beauty of old tools is some of them work well until they don't. And that might be because of the training or the type of training you're doing with your dog, or it could be the dog itself. It could be that one dog works well off something and the other dog that you've got doesn't. It could be choices and opinions or it could be law or it could be a lot of things. There are a lot of factors that we're considering about what we're using, what we're doing in training. Yeah, the specific behavior. There's so many things. Yeah, there is. There's so many factors. To why you would use a particular tool. And so we're just going to hit some of the wave tops on that today. The wave tops? Yeah, the wave tops. We can't explore the whole thing. Is that not a term you know? Well, it is now. (laughs) Now that you've just thrown that in there. Yeah. You always amaze me with some little technical jargon. So the first one and probably the most important tool that I'm using at the moment is a clicker. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a good tool. It, it, the funny thing is I resisted the clicker for a long time, not a marker, but I just kind of felt it was a pain in the ass to carry. Mm. And like in our video series, we actually explain that. I always have acknowledged that a clicker is better, it's sharper, it's more consistent, but carrying it around is just a pain in the ass and you can't be sure you're always going to do that. And I resisted it for a long time until I saw the, I feel now that the the clarity it brings, the consistency and the sharpness, like your ability to get better timing with it, I think is was now worth Was it that sort of changed your mind No, it was actually that? the Hans and Esther. It was okay. Esther, yeah. Hmm. And like I, I knew it all, but I just hadn't. Oh, that's right. Because she gave you a clicker, didn't she? She did. She gave me a clicker. She didn't give me one. Well, I guess. You're not a specialist, mate. Mm. It's funny because they gave away a bunch of clickers those days and you still see, you still see people with those clickers. Treasuring their Hans yeah, and Esther their clicker. special white yeah. and blue Hans and Esther clicker. Oh, by the way, exciting news. Uh, Hans and Esther are coming back. Oh, that's exciting. When? They will be here uh, around November. I'm still yet to confirm those dates and times with Karen Eaton, who's their regular host in Australia. Cool. But yeah, today um, she told me that they're coming back and uh, I'm – Aesthetic. I'm really looking forward to it. Mm. Through them, I sort of realized, ah, okay, the clicker is 
you can capture behavior better. I always knew you could do that, but I sort of thought like, oh, is it worth the effort of using the clicker, carrying it around? Mm. But then I realized it was Bart that brought in like, no, the clicker means a specific function yep. and not just reward in general. Like for me now the clicker means food, mm. not just reward in general. I have very specific markers for different things. Yep. All that said, actually don't use a clicker that much because I use it, if I'm teaching a dog a brand new behavior, I use a clicker, but then I condition, like I'd sort of click with my mouth, like I go like that for that exact reason that I chip. don't. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we just learned. But yeah, I, I still acknowledge a clicker is the best tool for marking behavior. Uh, it's so precise, it's so consistent, and it's so clear to the dog, but carrying it around can be difficult. There's that guy that was invented that clicker ring that still just hasn't come to market properly. Did you ever see that? Yeah, yeah, I saw that floating around social media for quite some time. I think the problem was that he patented that and wanted to manufacture it in the US. And so it's going to cost like $30 a ring and for a clicker, which no one's going to pay 30 bucks for a ring. Why would you want to develop it in a country that's going to charge a fortune? To well, that, that's the issue. So, I mean, I could be totally wrong about this. My understanding was that he's now sitting on the patent because he's you know, a patriot and wants to have it manufactured in the States. But okay. the, the, the idea, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool idea, but it just means that it's just so difficult to come to market because I, I applied years ago to, I wanted to sell them. I wanted them. Mm. Um, but when I found out they were going to be, I think $30 or something was what his estimate was. And I haven't seen them, so I don't think it ever went ahead. I could be totally wrong. I might have just made the whole thing up. It would have to be, for my liking, to go ahead with it, it have to have quite a decent clicker tone. Yeah. Because the one thing I worry about something so small is, how loud is it going to produce the click? Yeah, yeah, totally. The argument will probably be, well, canine hearing is far more sensitive than ours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, in saying that, it's if you look at it, it it's like a little ring mm. and it's only going to be so loud. Well, the videos of his prototype look really good. It okay. sounded like a you know normal sort of clicker. Yep. But it, it hasn't come to market yet, which is a bit of a bummer. If if anyone knows that guy, tell him hurry up, get it on, get it out there. Just let people in China make it. Mate, get your shit together. Like, mate, we're, <laughs> we want we're, your we're clickering. Waiting for your clickering. We want your clickering, but we only want to pay five dollars max. Yeah, no, <laughs> no one wants to pay thirty dollars for a bloody clicker. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's the only uh, to me that's the only drawback of the clicker. It can be fumbly in your hand. I think that you sort of get over that. You sort of find a way to hold it, and you get pretty used to the, where it goes. But it's just that you might want to mark a behavior that isn't and you don't have it on you. So I'd still use a clicker, definitely use a clicker. I, if I'm teaching something new and it's a formal session, I get the clicker out. But I also load with the same value uh, that verbal marker. I acknowledge that it's probably never the same value. Like my dog, Sam was clicking for him at four weeks old. Mm. Um, so that clicker really does hold more, what's the word for that? Like it's, it's dynamite in his brain. It's really... It's more value. It's really heavily imprinted. imprinted. Yeah, yeah, imprinted. Whereas my sound he knows that it's clear but it doesn't have as much oomph as the clicker mm. there's an argument to support that the clicker actually offers more value in the, the tone over the word yes i'd seen that quite some time ago there was a it was something online that uh, i think trish harris who's one of our regular listeners of the show she had some uh, evidence to support that clickers offer more of a salient tone that yeah, the right. dog picks up on so trish if you are listening to this episode and you happen to have that material present, post it up. I'd love to everybody to have a look at that because I think it's uh, it, it's important. You were talking before, Pat, about your resistance to clickers for your mm. reasons. I had a totally different reason, which I've, I think I've discussed in another episode where it was more, I thought, sissies use clickers. Yeah. 
And I had my own, we talk about cognitive dissonance. I had my own cognitive dissonance about it. I was really resistant to it and, and would speak openly against it and say, why would you use a clicker? It's a pain in the ass tool to carry around with you when you can just say the word yes. However, I do believe that the clicker is, I know it is a pain in the ass sometimes to carry it around, but it, I believe that offers a, a better opportunity for the dog to get the mark yeah. right at the time that it's, it's produced. It's a true neutral tone. It is a true neutral tone. It never differs from, like the word yes can change in pitch and tone, which it does quite frequently. People say it with excitement. People say it when they're disappointed. So your pitch and tone changes as you say it, whereas the clicker, unless it's broken, always stays the same pitch and tone. Yeah. And so, you know, like what you see is people trying to teach a dog a behavior. They're a little bit frustrated that the dog finally gets it and their yes then is really different to what it is normally. Mm. And they like it. They like what the dog did, so they jackpot. And then the next time they give their yes, the dog can very then very quickly then figure out that sounded a lot different and I didn't get as high a reward as that jackpot yes. The dog can tell the difference between the two, mm. which is not ideal because then you're not really on a variable reward schedule. The other thing that has to be mentioned is that people have successfully trained dogs without the use of a mechanical clicker or a mechanical oh, device. But I mean, in saying that, people have been using whistles for years. Yeah. Farmers have been using their own whistle or a manufactured whistle, like a steel tube whistle that they've been uh, using out on field trials and so forth for many, many years, which either is a cue for a behavior or it's terminating behavior when the dog performs the role, which is mainly what people need to remember and think about is that there's for many, many years, there have been verbal markers that have been given successfully with a lot of dogs and nobody's had an issue with it. No, exactly. Uh, speaking of whistles, did you see I brought the whistle back in with Remy? Yeah, um, I did. And so I loaded that when he's a puppy from mm. about maybe 10 weeks to maybe 12, maybe 14 weeks. Mm. And I just did it with coconut water and a few jackpots of food. So about a month of once a day. That's right. You're squirting in his mouth with a... Like no, that a, was brandy. I was squirting it. With Remy, I just jackpotted him from a bowl um, yeah. of coconut water. Because Brandy loved it and he he enjoyed it as well. And then it's been, you know, over a year uh, and I put him on the marker and whistled and he came flying back. So wow. okay. it, it, he remembered it. it it's, it's right in there. And he came in with some serious intensity too. So it, it's... It, on did, the first go? Or first did, go, yeah. Wow, okay. Oh, to be honest, I, I called him. I said, just to make sure I gave, like, I gave the whistle and then called him to heal but he was already coming mm. like by the time I said it. So he remembered it and that's a year later. But like I say, that was a, a puppy and he was hot when I got him. It was that heat wave and I was giving him coconut water, cooling him down and making him feel good. So it, it obviously lasted. I think David Mackelson from Victoria trains his dog with a whistle, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, he's posted a video of that, a silent whistle. Yeah, silent whistle. Yeah, from his elephant trainer days. So David, if you're, I know you listen to the show periodically. So if you do hear this episode and you've got a picture of your dog training with a whistle because I think it's you. No, he definitely has posted that. Yeah. I don't know if he's I'm, doing I'm it. Sure he's, he got a, he's got a really nice Monsimbi German Shepherd that he's doing some really yeah, nice beautiful work with dog. at the moment. But mm. there was a dog before that he had the whistle. I don't know if he's still doing it with that dog. I've used the silent whistle, but I, it just was a bit of a pain in the ass. Mm. It wasn't as easy to use, so I, I sort of bend it a little bit. Which is fundamentally the rule of training is use what works. Yeah. And not only use what works for the dog, but also what use what works for you. Yeah. Like it, sh- it certainly would have worked for the dog if it was conditioned, but yeah, I it just does. didn't enjoy using it. It wasn't that comfortable. Mm. What's interesting about the whistle as well, do you remember back when I was 
imprinting that whistle with Remy and I used a different whistle and it had no effect. Mm. You remember that? Yeah, so I do. We talked about that for a little while, just yep. a different brand of whistle, which I thought is pretty interesting. I actually, after that, bought 20 of the same whistle that I had because I thought if I – imagine on competition day – It breaks or the ball – yeah, or you or just whatever. forget it and you yep. say to your mate, hey, can I borrow your whistle? And it's a different tone. The dog, the dog goes, goes no. That's not my whistle <laughs> and doesn't come back. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I yeah, thought, I thought that would generalize, but it, it didn't, it, not at all. He was like, no, nah, that's a different whistle. It's not mine. But that's one of those great things about working with different tools that you're doing in training and just even variations of what you did, like what you've discovered with the whistle is that you can find something works extremely well great results and then you modify it or change it even ever so slightly and it has a whole different interpretation to how the dog feels about it Mm. and again borrowing my favorite old saying from esther doesn't matter what you think and feel at the end of the day it matters what the dog thinks and feels yeah exactly so if the dog is having a different interpretation of it then obviously there's something that the dog doesn't understand about it and to you you're just thinking well man it's a whistle you should be responding to this but the dog's going well it's not my whistle Mm. Which again, on I've seen students in the field where they're clicking a clicker, and you'd think that the dog hearing their clicker from a distance, the dog would snap its head and turn to attention. Yet the dog is thinking, "Yeah, I, can, I heard a clicker, but that's not my clicker. Mm. That's not the clicker that I'm using with you, and you didn't click it, so I'm I'm not going to fall for that trick." Yeah, interesting because a lot of students have said to me, "Well, what's going to happen in those sort of situations where we're out in the field?" And I said, "In all the experience I've had." I said it's not an ideal situation. In an ideal situation when you're doing teaching phase exercises, when the dog's in early learning, you want to isolate yourself as much as possible, limit the distractions you've got, and then work with the dog there. And then gradually increase those distractions as you're going through your training program. However, because we're forced into that situation, because the students have only got a small window of time to actually do it, the dogs don't care about other students clicking their clickers. They're mm. not even looking at them. They're not acknowledging them, not paying attention to them because they get, they, you can see the dog analyzing in its head, that ain't my clicker. Mm. There's no value. There's no, there's no reward coming from it. I think what also, I mean, I've definitely observed this, is that the use of a clicker can also have like a plavlovian effect. A, a plavlovian. A plavlovian. <laughs> <laughs> a conditioned effect with a, a visual cue yep. because you inevitably move your hand and wrist or whatever when you click and I've seen dogs, they can determine that's part of it So I've, yeah. and, I, and I've practiced that myself. Yeah, I agree. I do agree. Like, I, I wouldn't have believed it unless I saw it. Yeah. But because you're actually out there and you're witnessing the actual physical event, then you agree. You can't argue with something that you're seeing yeah, unfold yeah. before you. To hear something is one thing, to, to witness it, to lay witness to it is entirely different. So yeah. when you've actually seen a dog responding to it and you think, wow, there's a, a sequence, an event sequence that the dog is actually following there. Yeah, I, I tested that. I, I ripped one open, took the bit of tin out and with Val at like 100 metres, just did the, clicked it and she came flying in. It made no noise, mm-hmm. uh, but she knew that action. Mm, so it definitely happens. And I think that's one of the things when dogs can determine their click over another person clicking, it's because their person didn't go through that visual cue as well. It's all part of the picture to the dog. Mm. Um, Which in some situations you need to be careful with. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, especially when you're looking, I mean, it's not so bad when you're just doing it for day-to-day obedience just to get the dog to behave, but when you're actually in trial, the last thing you want to do is is have the dog cue to the way you roll your hand or how you dip your head or anything like that because the dog sees those it becomes a chained reaction for the dog. The dog starts to see that chain and thinks, well, well, that means that I'm going to get rewarded, so I have to respond to it. Yeah, and you definitely don't want that 
in some things and and that can be a sneaky little bit of help that you might be able to give mm. the dog in, in others. You could be a bit cheeky and um, Forrest Mickey teaches a good trick of that with his rear end awareness stuff of having your hand with the palm of your hand down to teach the dog to spin anti-clockwise mm-hmm. and the palm of your hand up to teach the dog to spin counterclockwise. And then when you're in the healing, you can manipulate the back end of the dog by the way your hand is held when you're just walking. So it's like a rudder for the dog. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very subtle cue that the dog should be able to pick up on and then you can manipulate the back end and you can then sneakily give indicators to the dog that you're going to turn left or right by with your yeah, hand. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah. yeah and that is clever. he's got videos of it working really well. Yeah. It's good when people pay attention to things like that, when they're actually yeah, watching yeah. how a dog comprehends what you're doing. Yeah. Well, um, people will tell you, really good dog sport competitors will tell you that dog sport is all about cheating without breaking the rules. Mm. <laughs> so you want to be like absolutely surf the rim of what a judge can see. It's like surfing the burst, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. Surf the rim of what a judge can see and if they if they don't see it, then you haven't broken the rules uh, and that's – all your little hidden cues and secret commands and indicators to the dog. You see that in like the MBBK with the protection of the handler. Mm. You, they teach us, a lot of the guys, and Bart used to do this as well, he'd teach the dog, when my hands are crossed, you're not biting anyone. So all the false <laughs> attacks and that sort of thing and ch- people charging you, the dog learns, no, no, the boss has his hands crossed, I, I don't bite. Yep. And then when it's the actual one where the cue is not the – the touch by the decoy or whatever, it's the handler releases his hands and now the dog bites. So it's I totally, it's totally defeats the purpose of the exercise, but you've just found a new way of, of getting all the points mm. within the rules. So it's totally fine. There's a good old life saying that says all great fortunes have begun with a crime. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, might be the same with a high level of obedience. Maybe, yeah. but maybe people are saying, oh, you of these fuckers cheating, <laughs> talking about us cheating, which we never do. Cheating, cheating within the rules. Cheating Don't within the, the rules. rules and you're yeah. still good. Well, to bend is not to break, I guess. Mm. All right, so that's mechanical markers. There's other ones, you know, for using a manners minder, that sort of thing. It's all the same effect. There's some kind of marker that is outside of... Do you still use yours? Yeah, I still do it, but it really for only for specific behaviours. Yep. Uh, I use it for directional sends. Yep. Um, and following Which would be laser. perfect for. Yeah, it's perfect with two of them. I, I think that if you're going to bother with a manners minder or a treat and train, they're called now, uh, yep. you need two. Um, so it, its real power is in being able to send the dog to one and not the other and making it click. But it's one of those things that's, a, again, it's one of those pain in the ass things that you've got to set it all up. And yeah, yeah. It's not for a lazy trainer. No, well, they are good for a lazy trainer if you, for some exercises, mm. like you can really teach a lot of, you know, I've done manners mind, so I teach positions with the manners minder on my treadmill and I put the manners minder on a platform in front of it mm. and I sit there and drink beer and the manners minder trains my dog and the dog goes through positions offering it on the treadmill. It's basically stuck there. It can't do too much else. And I hit the button and I literally am not involved in it at all. And then you can then, once the dog's going through, sit down, stand, eating out of the manners minder and it understands those positions. You can do a long session too, because you can't burn out the dog. He's only going to get angry at the manners minder. You can do a whole meal over, you know, 20, 40 minutes, which I would never do with a dog. But so long as he's there engaged with the manners minder, it doesn't affect their relationship, doesn't affect anything with me. I don't care if he gets angry at the manners minder and never wants to work for it again. I'm teaching these behaviors. And then once he's going through them, then when he is sitting, I say, sit, Click with the manners minder and away it goes. So they're mm. good for that. It's good for lazy training. They definitely are good. They're, they hold a place in the in respect to any type of training that you're doing because they definitely work. Yeah. What I would be interested in knowing because I know probably about half a dozen people who bought them the, about the around about the time that you bought yours. Mm. 
I'm interested to know if they're still using them, how they're going with them, if they're finding them effective or if they're sitting up on top of their yeah. dog training cupboard covered in dust. Yeah. Well, so like I said, I bought two. I use them personally at least every week. Paul's, Paul must have at least one. <laughs> Paul Doyle, sure. I'm sure you've got a manners minder. If you, if you, you've got everything else. <laughs> if if sure. you've got a manners minder, mate, tell me in the comments. When did you use it last? When did you use it last? Uh, what I do use them for a lot is doorbell reactive dogs, not even reactive do- dogs that had just learned to bark at the doorbell mm-hmm. and I can kind of condition it with the manners minder because yeah, yeah, yeah. I find the big benefit in that. For anyone that doesn't know, the manners minder is, it looks like a motorbike helmet. It, you fill it with food and it's remote controlled treat dispenser. Put a picture up on Facebook when we Yeah, I'll put one on up. There. But it's a remote controlled treat dispenser. You hit the button. It has a tone. If you like, you, you can turn off the tone, but... I recommend you leave it on. Has a tone just like a clicker. It goes beep, and then food falls out of it. And you got to make sure that you have a certain type of kibble in there too, don't you? Because yeah, that, that, well, it comes with two different filters. Openings. Yeah, yep. I guess, and you, you got to use the right one or you get jammed. Mm. But I use that for counter conditioning doorbell. I was talking to this jazz just before about it's a good one because you can leave it in the house. It can sit there all the time. Yep. And then even if you're not home and the doorbell goes off and it doesn't go beep and blah, 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 the whole system's not there, at least the manners mind is there so the dog still has that opportunity to go over and look at it. So mm, it, mm. It's, you get a better lasting effect. You just have to deal with having a manners minder in your house for, you know, sitting around. But they're good. Oh, they on work. your dog training shelf. Yeah, on your dog training shelf. <laughs> uh, but they work really well. Okay. They're, I think they're one of the best inventions in dog training, very well modern things anyway. Yep. But I know you were very enthusiastic when they first came out. Cause, yeah. Uh, well, there's heaps of to play with them. There's heaps of cool tricks that you can do with it. Yep. But yeah, getting It'd be great get, for senderways. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. Yep. They get they they just get jammed. That's the only thing. Yep. But they're not that expensive. I like get a lot of clients. Hundred bucks, ninety nine bucks. I think or something? no, I think they're about one hundred and eighty something like that. Oh, okay. Which realistically, like for the 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 things that the amount of utility in them, they're mm. they're excellent. Yeah. So that's a matters minder. Okay. Next tools. Marker boards. Marker boards. Is that the clack clack? Uh, yeah. So like things I'm using a lot at the moment is a clack clack, but I use a lot of different marker boards and just really for positions. Oh yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't little wooden frames that you bring out for training. Yeah. Yeah. So which got, basically looks like a chest of drawers with one end of it missing and the yeah. bottom of it cut out. Yeah. Hmm. So like at the moment I, I cut around four different boxes, two of those, my, my feeding box that we've done a whole episode on and my That looks like box. he's got a car of unfinished timber projects. It's <laughs> <laughs> basically. I had a like a suit of armor made out of that same ply for my manners minder because mm-hmm. I was I was training this one dog in particular that just kept smashing it to pieces oh, wow. and it wasn't yeah. like it was, I mean, it was good drive, but I was like, man, I can't have this dog smashing it. Oh, you so. just ripped the Perspex roof off it all the time. Yeah, and just yeah. bite it nonstop. So yeah. I actually made like a box that went over the top of the manners minder to protect it. But he destroyed that. Okay. <laughs> but at least it protected the mm. reminder for a little while. Um, but yeah, marker boards. I use them all the time. Use them for all different sorts of things, positions. Yep. What I do a lot, it's actually a good one. We were just at a seminar and the marker boards are excellent because depends on which board and why, but I don't care too much if the dog fidgets around on it, depending on what I'm teaching. Mm. So do you notice like say someone does their behavior with the dog, if you're instructing them, they do the behavior with the dog and now me and you have to talk. Well, if the dog's off leash, now he goes and he, he dicks around and, and mucks around with people and we lose his engagement. Or if me, while me and you are talking, I put him in a down and I'm potentially damaging his down. I want, I want his down to be a particular way. Mm. And if he kicks over to the side or if he gets lazy and moves off, now we have to stop talking and we have to deal with that. 
I use one of those marker boards as just a place I can put the dog to do other things from. Yeah. In the earlier days when we were training, we used to call them framing. Mm -hmm. So we'd use frames for training so you could teach the dog not to move its bum out of it. Like, for example, if the dog was recalling into you, we used to have like a funnel frame. Mm -hmm. So you'd stand at the end of the funnel, the dog would run down to you and it couldn't move its butt left or right. Yeah. So after a period of time, what we would do is we would start to move the frames out a little bit. So we'd start to, first of all, the dog made contact with it, mark the dog and reward it. After a period of time, what we would do is then move the frame out a little bit and assess whether the dog was still maintaining a straight recall when the dog was coming in. Mm -hmm. Framing is pretty much similar to marker boards, Mm -hmm. not the same sort of thing. Yeah, exactly the same. But you can use even things like balls where people have used balls for dogs to come and stand on. Yeah, yeah. So they can do... Like a bozu ball. Like a bozu ball or even um, those small spiky balls that Mm -hmm. the dogs... Dom was doing it with his dog for a while Mm -hmm. where the dog would come in and place its rear legs on uh, on top of the balls. Mm -hmm. So I've seen dogs that have done it left and right front legs and left and right rear legs where they've come along and stood on uh, a ball and they've done drops and stands and sits in place. Yeah. There's there's lots of utility for it. But as I was saying with those boards, I like that I can send the dog to them and that's never going to affect anything for me. Like those ones that are just the sides and the floor, I don't do positions or anything in there. So I just send the dog to it and now me and you can talk and he stays on that board. And if he sits or downs or whatever, I don't care. And I don't have to pay too much attention to him. Mm. And it's also just a place I can send the dog to bring him back from. So if I'm practicing like my coming into a heel position, I can put the dog on that marker board really easily because I've charged it heavily and finds a lot of value in being on it. And then I can maneuver into the heel position. I can do recalls and all yep. that kind of thing. So it's just, it's just very handy to be able to send your dog. It's, it's just like a place command. Hmm. It's no different to anyone that has their bed and can send the dog to the bed. It's exactly the same thing. It's just this one's very robust. I can throw it around. And like I said, I've put a lot of value into that. So the dog yep. happily runs and gets on it. And then I can do a send away and all kinds of things. Hmm. They're just a very handy thing to have. Very, There's a lot of utility and a lot of imagination and creativity you can put into using those And cheap to knock up, right? Yeah, totally. Mm. And super easy. Mm. But like, you know, for example, my dog in the left heel position, he knows that and he knows between my legs. And then one day I asked him to go from between my legs into that heel position and he didn't do it. And I was like, you know, how do I show him what I want him to do? He doesn't understand the movement around. Mm. So my heel position, I didn't want to damage and I didn't want him, I didn't want to accept less in that position because I've got it where I want it. So all I did was stand next to the marker board and instead of asking him to come into heel, because I wanted to accept the lesser criteria, I told him to get on the marker board and I'm happy to fuck up the criteria on my marker board. It doesn't matter anything to me. So yep. I, could, I could allow him to come out, let him figure out the mechanics of it. Mm. Two sessions of that, now he can swing from the middle to a heel position because he's, he taught himself the mechanics of that and I was able to reward him during the motion on his way to the marker board, which I didn't want to reward him on the way to the heel because it yep. wasn't correct. But as I say, I don't care how he stands on the marker board, only that he got there. He taught himself the movement and then I brought out the marker board on the third session and then said the marker command followed by Fuss and I actually played with saying that both ways in front of him. So he, within you know a couple of reps, he was like, oh, okay, I know what you want. Got rid of the marker board now he can do that behavior. Yep. So it's just a, a, a really handy utility of, as I say, I use it mostly for that in that getting the dog in a position where if I'm going to, damage the criteria of that position, I don't care yep. about doing it on the mark board. hope that makes sense. It does, yeah. understand that. But it's a process in the teaching phase evolution of the dog yeah. that it's it's like anything. It's there as it's required and when it's no longer required, it's taken away, it's removed. Yeah. 
And then within the marker boards is, as you said, the clack clack, which is really handy tool. It's, it's just so simple. It's just a stainless steel plate and it goes clack when a dog hits it. Mm. And the utility for that is huge as well. Um, it's just a marker board. There's nothing, but there's no magic inside that thing. But it gives a dog a dopamine rush. Yeah, on it's the way to, Yeah, but the, to, uh, clicking itself. Yeah, the dog can click for itself. I remember the first time I saw a video of it many years ago and I thought, oh, what a load of shit. This yeah, thing. yeah, same. And uh, I, I think I even vocalised that on one of the sites I was on at the time. I openly said, I, you know, this just looks like a rip-off a rip off or a gimmick or something. Yeah. However, when you see the interactions that dogs have when they're trained with them, like most things, when the dog understands the concept of it, it's it highly charges behaviour. Yeah. And I had noticed it so, I know it's not a dog, but I had seen that and I've heard, you know, they, they jack a dog up, they increase dopamine because a dog can click himself basically mm. and he can smash it and create But they get so excited on the way to it because they know that when they do it. They're in command. They're in command. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's nothing a dog loves more than the the illusion of being in control. Yeah, which totally. Which successful dog trainers all over the world, once you have that developed that concept with the dog where the dog has the belief, the illusion that it's in control, you have mastered a lot of training concepts. Yeah. Because that's where people get it wrong and that's the early style of training. I know you've got something you need to say. <laughs> but this is one of the things where people get it so wrong with training is for many years we've been told we have to stand over our dog and dominate them and crush them and do all these sort of things. Yeah. But that's not the case. No, what we have to do, it. yeah, what we have to do is remain in control but also give the dog the belief that it's in control. Yeah. So the dog is happy and it's elated because it's constantly thinking, how good is this? Look at this chump. He's Look at this chump. He's all he does me. is just stuffs food into my mouth yeah. from this little bag on his ear. For shit I was going to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's, I mean, that's what I try and explain to people. That's the, that's the idea I want in my, in my dog's head. Yeah, it's head. the eye teeth of it. Is Look at this idiot rewarding yep. me for things I was going to do. Yeah. Yeah, when my clack clack first arrived, I put it on the ground and I, I'd seen – Dogs getting crazy on it, and I thought it's, they've just learned that it, mm. they've they've had that charge, which is yeah, it has to be charged. But Rip, who you know, he could barely walk at the time. He was busy your son, one. my son. Yeah, yep. he walked over to it and stood on it, and it made the clack clack. And he, you could see he liked it and started smashing it and mm. started like bang, 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 bang. And I stood there watching dopamine grow in this kid smashing the clack clack. He was barely walk, and he's standing there stamping on this thing. I, instantly I understood. I was like, ah, I see what's happening here. Like he, this is, and the dog does the same thing. As soon He's as they developing joy out, from it. Yeah. Mm. As soon as they figure out this is connected to a positive outcome, he just enjoyed doing it. But as soon as the dog goes, oh, this is connected to a positive outcome and I can smash this hard and get it done. Yeah. This is fantastic. Well, it's a large clicker that the dog can control the click. Yeah. Mm. Remy broke mine the other day because I had been using it as a, for bite work and because at the moment we can't do any bite work. When he saw me get it out, he's like, oh, we're on. It's bite work. Mm. Uh, and then after I didn't reward him with a bite from it, he cracked it and started smashing it and picked it up and smashed it. And I was, again, it was another like, well, maybe I should be letting this dog bite because he just bit a stainless steel plate. <laughs> I, I thought you'd be sitting there going, there goes another fucking tooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a fucking dog. Mm. Anyway, marker boards. Yeah. Slip leash is the next one on our list. Yeah, slip leash. So we use them predominantly here at the kennels. Mm-hmm. I think they're great for control work in dogs that are a little edgy. Rather than using something that's corrective, you can use something like a slip leash to get, especially for working on outs. I know other people say that's, you know, if you're doing that sort of thing, you shouldn't, you've messed up the out, you haven't done it right. However, sometimes when a dog is a little loaded, a slip leash can be 
an excellent form to get a dog under control, let go of the, mm-hmm. the once the dog feels that um, that negative reinforcement aspect going on where there's pressure and then when the dog starts to slip off the sleeve, so too does the pressure of the slip leash around the dog's neck. We use them predominantly at the kennels for a safety reason that it also helps prevent the dogs from pulling our staff over when the dogs are trying to rush back is that when they feel a little pressure on the lead, they reduce the amount of running and charging they're doing to get back to their owners and they um, slip back under control. So I don't have my staff with no skin on their knees and elbows when they bring their dogs up. Mm. So we're a big fan of those. Fantastic for safety too because the dog can't shrug it. The dog goes to pull down and the slip leash just tightens around the dog's neck. If it goes to pull back, same sort of thing, it just tightens around the dog's neck. Whereas if you've got poorly fitted collars, which you shouldn't have if you're a professional in any field, but... You know, as we've seen, many mistakes happen in training. Yeah, shit happens. Shit happens. With a slip leash, they tend to prevent it. Like everything, they're, they're, it's an application that it either works well for you or it doesn't. Some people just don't like it because to them it's just another corrective device that they just roll their eyes at and go, oh, it's an aversive. Mm. Well, bad luck. Yeah. You know, in those sort of situations, sometimes it's required. I only started with the slip leash about 18 months ago and it, it sort of I was looking for a way to apply pressure in the knee popo system and being in New South Wales, not using a knee collar. Mm. And so I was looking at a way to just apply pressure in general, but a very slow, so a quick release, but a slow to take up and, and very variable pressure. Mm. And then listening to the dog training conversations podcast. and Yeah, because I think Chad was very heavily involved in slip leashes for yeah, quite yeah. a lot of, a long time. I think he's changed his, I could be wrong, but when I was at the IACP conference, he was all about slip leashes. That was like his MO for quite a while. Yeah. However, I think he's migrated away from relying on them too heavily into different forms of training. Yeah, I think so. We get to ask him when he's out here. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's he actually, might, if he listens to the show, he might be able to tell us directly. Yeah, I don't know. But that's actually the main reason when I contacted him the first time about coming out to do the seminar. That's because I really wanted to learn more slip leash work because he's sort of the, the slip leash guy. Mm. Um, and obviously he's broadened his horizons at the moment. He's going to all different areas, but he still has that knowledge on board. And I just wanted to get better at that because I play with them a lot. And the, the good thing about slip leash is it's very non-invasive. Mm. It's probably the oldest tool in dog training. It's literally just a piece of rope. It, it's probably the first dog training tool realistically, right? That's probably yeah. what the caveman put on the wolf. Um, yeah, pr- pretty much. And it's just, it's very easy. You can make a slip leash out of the other end of your lead yeah. by slipping your lead through the handle. It's not a reliable one and not one that I'd recommend, but uh, in a pinch, yeah, it's a perfect type of slip lead that you put around your dog's neck. Often when people's leads have broken or their equipment's failed or they've grabbed a second dog while they've got their own dog and they're trying to get it under control, they've just done the old collar through or, or the loop through the collar slipped it around the dog's neck and, hey, presto, you've got an ability to control your dog right there, right then. Yeah, I do that all the time with, with Val. Like she hardly ever wears a collar and if for some reason I have to put her on leash, I just do that with her normal leash. Hmm. But, yeah, slip leads, I use them all the time. I, I get them off Jason. He, the ones he has made are, are excellent and, yeah, they're, they're super handy. Like I put, you know, not all, like it's not like I'm a one-trick pony with them, but I certainly for a lot of pet dogs, mm. I get people to put slip leash on straight away uh, because it just, it, once you teach it properly and get effective control, and, and it's just very easy to talk people into using a slip leash. Yeah, it, it, I agree with that because there's a lot of tools that you can actually show general public and they just won't get the, neck, the, the hang of it. They don't mm. understand the knack of how it works and how to use it and get correct timing, but with slip leads, 
if you're getting a slip lead, let me just have a caveat on this. I, I, I need to do this because we're talking about it and if the wrong type of person listens to this, mm. they're going to make an issue of it as they do. They're just that triggered type of person. Make sure you have one that is safe and does release, not yeah. one that, that ratchets on pressure and, and doesn't uh, relieve the dog because surely we'll talk about this and somebody say, ah, oh, well, you could strangle a dog and you could do this and you could do that. There's a whole range of things that can happen to dogs. But with a good slip leash, uh, once the pressure goes on and the dog stops pulling, the slip leash disengages immediately. Like as fast as it slips in on pressure, it slips out of pressure as well. And I think that's a really good point. I've actually got one in my pocket. Well, I have. There it is. You could do demonstrations that only I can see. That's right. I can do air demonstrations that the viewers, well, the the audio files at home can't can't. can't um, but I think exactly as you're just saying, I think what's really important with the slip leash is people understand that that release is when the learning happens. Yep. That's when the dog goes, ah, oh, okay. I just got rewarded. Yeah. That's the the good thing happened, and mm. if it doesn't release, they never get that. Yeah. That's that negative reinforcement aspect yeah. of the slip leash, where as the pressure comes off, the dog goes, okay, so something good here is happening. Yeah. So especially for a dog pulling on the lead, which is, you know, a really common call out for the average dog trainer, within sort of 10, 15 minutes, you can teach the dog the rules of the slip lead and then you can bring in the owner and teach them the rules of the slip lead and you can get a dog, so long as it's nothing crazy, it's just pulling on the lead, you just Mm. teach it like, hey, when this is constricting, we're not going anywhere, when it's loose, we're going to go forward, simple, right? It's it's, it's very It can be used for advanced techniques as well and different types of behaviours, but um, again, it takes somebody who's a little bit tactically and technically aware of what they're doing. Perfect point you just made then for a lot of people with pet dogs, it can be used very simplistically. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, a lot of people shouldn't be messing with things that they don't understand. Like it's like when you go into your computer settings and there's an advanced settings tab there and you go on there and you erase your hard drive. (laughs) Well, that happened because you don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be fiddling with the advanced tab. It's there for people who do know what they're doing. It's the same thing with training equipment. Don't touch the advanced tab. Ring a technical expert Mm. who can show you how to rewrite what you think you might be doing wrong. Yeah. Well, and the slip lead, exactly as you said, like in that circumstance, for pulling on the leash, we're sort of teaching don't do, pressure means don't do. Yep. But I actually use a slip lead in the bite work as pressure means do. So yep. not for outs but for ins. Yep. Totally. Whatever the the rules to the dog are what you teach it. Exactly. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's Everything is based on how you perceive it. Yeah. So slip lead isn't the best tool for everything but – if the dog it's has, a tool. yeah, if the and dog that's has, what we're talking about, yeah, if the dog has no history with it, then you go, okay, cool. Well, we, I'm going to make this collar. I'm going to make pressure mean do this, mm. and when the pressure comes off, I'm happy with you, and that can be whatever you want. Yeah, it's like the old saying, and I've uttered this, and again, it's one of those things in podcasts. I'm not sure if I've said it in, at, at any stage, but uh, it's like the old saying that in life, if all you have a, is a hammer, everything presents as nails. Mm. And I'm, I know you've heard me say that before. It was told to me years ago in um, when I was an electrician because a lot of times people, you know, they rely on one tool to do the task of many when it's not the right tool to use. Yeah. And as an electrician, we used to use our pliers for everything. So we pliers are, are an electrician's hammer. Yeah, right. You know, you use them for cutting nails, for banging nails in, for trying to tear bits of wood out of the way when it's not the right tool to use. Yeah. It's just that you... Stonemasons, it's the punch. Oh, the punch, yeah. Mm. Yep. It's the it's the thing you use. Well, everybody has their shortcut tool that they just think, oh, well, now it's in my hand, I'll just use it this way. And, you, I mean, you butcher a lot of things by 
using that tool the right way. You know, no wonder so many nails are bent when electricians being there because they're banging it in with their frigging um, with their pliers. With their pliers, yeah. yeah here's a here's a, a fun fact, totally unrelated to dog training or anything relevant. Mm. Michelangelo, the sculptor of the David, mm. famously said that the only sculpting tool is the punch. Every every chisel after that is designed to take away the marks of the chisel before. So you do okay. all the – there you go. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Thing? So he made that tiny little penis on David with a punch. With a punch. And, yep. then he, and then you use – He punched a penis Like out. a big bolster to take away the punch marks <laughs> and then you get a smaller one, a smaller one, a smaller one, so you okay. get down to that. That is interesting. Well, I suppose that makes sense because you are shaving things that's, away. Yeah. You're carving, uh, carving out the – So that's totally useless for everyone to know. Hmm. Back from my stomach days. All right, cool. So slip leash, we pretty much covered that. We have, yeah. Let's go different. We're looking at a list of things we're going to talk about. Let's go out of that and then go to the correction chain. Yep. Correction chain. This is one that I think a lot of people use incorrectly when they try and use it like a slip leash. You know, one of the things that really baffles me is how much information is out there on a regular basis that you can actually watch a YouTube clip these days on how to do it. I taught myself how to weld by watching YouTube clips. (laughs) I, uh, and that's no word of a lie. I, yeah. I sat down, I, we bought a welder because we need to weld up a lot of things and I thought I really need to learn how to weld. So there's a place called welding.com and there's a guy called Jody on there and he does all these tips and techniques on how to do things and how to, you know, reverse polarity, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole list of things. So there is a YouTube clip for almost everything out there yeah, that yeah. you could watch and there's not just one, there's multiple amounts of it, mm-hmm. even with my kombucha making I've been watching now that you're uh, a booch baron. Now that I'm a booch baron, I've been watching so many clips on you know how to get the scoby going, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, with with that type of thing, we're in the midst of technical brilliance, information where, overload. Uh, information overload. You know, I often marvel, and Louis C.K. does a great skit on how bratty people are about technology, where he's sitting on a plane and. You know, they say, oh, the Wi-Fi is on. Someone goes to use it and then it stops working. They go, oh, this is shit. (laughs) The clip is brilliant. It makes me laugh so much. And he's saying, you know, we're on a plane soaring through the air. And, you know, isn't it just amazing? Shouldn't it be going well? But that's where It's because you can't check your Facebook. Yeah, you can't get on Facebook and go, lol, (laughs) traveling through the air, lol. So in regards to that, we there are so much information out there. There's so much that people can actually learn if they spend five minutes having mm. having a bit of a look around it and they'll still screw it up. Mm. But the reason that they're screwing it up is because they're not looking at, at it properly. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is they'll get on a forum and say, hey, I tried to use a correction chain and this happened and somebody will say, oh, that was crafted in hell. Yeah. Um, Satan made Literally that. forged by the devil. Yeah, it dropped out of his butt and... Um, Ergo, you are the devil. That's right. You are the devil. You've become the devil. You've uh, Since you've touched it, it's infected you. You've just turned red and horns have cracked through your skull. You are the devil. Mm-hmm. So it, there's, a, there's a ridiculous... It's not sensible that people are actually making that conclusion about correction chains because... They're not thinking about the practical aspect where it has worked very successfully with a lot of dogs. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've used correction chains for many, many years. Does that mean that I reach for a correction chain now? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that if I need to upgrade to it in order to fix a problem, 
like you were saying, with some skills that the punch is the best thing to mm-hmm. carve it out. Oh, that was Michelangelo. That said Michelangelo. That. <laughs> so with the punch is a great thing to chisel something out and or, or shape shape material and then that you carve it with chisels to reduce it in size and start cleaning up your work. And it's the same thing. If I need to punch out a behaviour with something, then I might look to use a correction chain. So there's a right and a wrong way to put a correction chain on basically. And if you are using them, if you have the the nerve to go past all the forum nannies that are going to tear into you and, and ever look into them, we only recommend the Herm Springer ones anyway. So mm-hmm. H, they've got HS Germany on each ring. The disappointing thing about them, there is no instruction manual that comes with them. Like mm-hmm. there's no, like even when you buy Halties or Gentle Leaders, they usually, they used to come with DVDs and quite detailed descriptions on the use of them. However, when you buy a correction chain, it's just two O-rings and a lot of chains that are hanging off a, um, a display marker. So when people pick it up, they go, oh, I'll just uh, wrap this around my dog's neck a couple of times and put a lead on it. And and, uh, and I'm good. And I'm good. And I don't know why all his hair's coming off and he's screaming like a banshee. It's because they never learned how to use them. Look, in retrospect, I think if you're going to get equipment, if you're going to get a puppy, you should at least go and do a block of training with somebody who can say, this is how this is used. This is how you apply this. This is how this is put on your dog. And certainly with a correction chain, I think that somebody should say, this is how you put it on your dog's neck. There's two ways. There's a right and a wrong way. You're 50% likely to, to get it right or wrong. But let me show you, if you've got the dog on your left-hand side predominantly, this is how you would fit a correction chain and this is how it should work. Also, one of the things that people often overlook is the size that they get. They quite frequently buy one that's way too long for the dog, yeah. which turns it into a ratchet. So what it does is it overlinks on the O-ring and then it becomes a choke chain instead of a correction chain. Mm-hmm. So this is where the, the terminology uh, choke chain came from is when people were turning them into ratchets by either A, putting it on the wrong way or B, buying one that was excessively long in length and then the links would ratchet over the top of the O-ring and then the dog would run down the street choking itself and gagging and coughing and spluttering. Mm-hmm. So people just looked at that and go, oh, well, Joe, look at that. That's just horrible. And they're right. And they, and they are right. It does look horrible and it isn't good for the dog's neck. It will cause swelling and, and all sorts of issues because it's long-term pressure in an area where it shouldn't be. Yeah. I think I've seen questions online, what's the difference between a slip lead and a correction chain and their use and application? To, to just hit the wave tops, I think a uh, slip leash I use mostly for negative reinforcement. So it's pressure while you're in the behavior, pressure comes off and you can do that really easy with a slip lead. Uh, with a correction chain, and I have used them in the past, I don't use them much, is more of a positive punishment tool. You can use it for negative reinforcement, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you can't. It's the same as a, a slip lead, you can use that for positive punishment. But with the, the correction chain, it's usually a, a stop that, positive punishment type tool. Yep. The issue I have with them, it's not an issue I have with them, but the reason I don't put many people in them is you do have to have a reasonable amount of strength mm. to use it. Yeah, you do. That's true. And and have good timing. The timing has to be very good to work and you need to be reasonably strong to do it. There is another issue with them as well is that when if the dog does become desensitized to it, it's you've lost all effectiveness of yeah. it anyway. So it's it's fundamentally becoming a useless tool. Mm. So a good tool in the right hands and has great All application. Of Every, everything in the right hands used correctly and the dog having the ability to understand it, it's, it's fine. Yeah. But, yeah, as you say, some damage 
I mean, just looking up how to put them on, we won't bother trying to explain that because it's, it's a visual thing. You really need to see a picture of it to understand it. But you, or you really need to go and see someone apply it properly. Yeah. Make sure it goes on the right way and it's a great tool you can use. Put mm. it on the wrong way and you can really fuck your dog up. Absolutely. As can you with not feeding them properly. Mm. So the next tool we can talk about is that martingale, right? Because that's kind of an intermediary between the um, slip lead. And yeah, I the- think it's a hybrid. I think it would be safe to say that it's a hybrid between a flat collar and a correction chain. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like the go-to tool when people were frightened away from correction chain. So when the movement sort of happened and people were condemned for using the devil's linkage, mm-hmm. i.e. correction chain, um, people started to get scared and they they were looking for alternates in training. So they went down two different camps. One, they went to the gentle leader or the halty, which is based on the horse halties that they wear, mm-hmm. or the martingale collar, which started to come into effect, which is a flat lead with a link that's connected. It's kind of like an... A chain portion. Yeah, it's a chain portion that when it pulls, it just adds pressure to the neck, pretty much like the, the concept of how a slip lead works. Yeah. So people looked at it and said, well, it looks much gentler. It, it still gives me the ability to correct my dog without looking like I'm being an asshole and yeah. using just chain links around the dog's neck. This is a softer application. Do they work? Yes, they do. We use them quite a lot here. We use them for, uh, and we use them for our van dogs as well. We've, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of um, martingales on the van. So when picking up dogs from homes and so forth, we pop it on the dog and, and uh, fit it up. Bit of fiddling around with it. Like any tool, it can be one of those things also that allows a dog, especially a stronger style of dog, to pull into it and realize this is not really doing anything. Yeah. It's not stopping me. And uh, the dog will then think, I can just engage at light speed. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do to stop the dog once it's got that in its head and, and it has that understanding and it's uh, and that belief is set in. Mm-hmm. So really it is a... It's actually a dumbed-down version of both, of a, a slip lead and a, a correction chain. It's it's ne- it's not as effective as either, but for a lot of dogs, it's 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 good perfect. enough. It's yeah. perfect, right? It, yeah. it, if you've got a, I, I've, I use them a lot. I put a lot of people in them because yeah. it, it, exactly that. It's it's less confronting. People are usually pretty happy to put on the dog. You can leave it on your dog. It can be your dog's collar that they wear most of the time around in the house. It's not the ideal, but it's safe. Mm. It's hard to get wrong once it's fitted correctly. You just slide it on. There's no front, back, up, down. It just goes on there. Yep. And they're they're comfortable for a dog to wear. And so long as a dog isn't too strong, they're pretty effective. Yeah, they they, they have their place. They do work. They're one of the things, again, it's one of the, those things that I originally looked at in the early days and I thought, oh, this is just garbage. This is just a, a PC way of training dogs. And I guess, again, you know, that's my own cognitive dissidence and my own a harsh judgment on, on things but without applying a little bit of critical analysis and looking at it and saying, well, it, it can be effective and it, and it can be more suitable for some dogs mm-hmm. because they certainly are. And uh, there's no problem with recommending them and having people use them provided that it is doing the, the role that it's set out to do. Yeah. So it's good for giving a, a correction on a dog that is sensitive to a correction. Pretty much. All right. So those things combined... We then go on to the the legit devil's tool, the one that if you use... Don't say it. it don't think you, it, don't say it. If you don't use think this, it, don't say it. you're a dog murderer, you're the worst <laughs> person on the planet and I hate you, the prong collar. Oh, my God. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. We, we need some sort of... Yeah, we need some sort of like horrible music, some screechy violin noises and yeah. children crying and... 
So I've said it before. I said, I've said it here on the podcast and I tell anyone that will listen. The first time I saw Pronco, I said, nah, that, that's a that's a medieval torture device. There's no way I'd use that. Didn't know how to use it, just looking at it. Mm. And I think that's a fair thing to say. I think we were say. talking about that with panels. Yeah, we? exactly, right? Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I think that's a fair thing to say when you look at it. And if you don't know how to use it, you are right to be horrified and yeah. you are right to think I'm not putting that on my dog. Mm. But when you learn how to use a prong collar, it's actually just pressure. It doesn't. It's not designed to stab the dog. It's just designed to to pinch. And that's why some people call them pinch collars. Yep. And they're a fantastic tool. And they really are the combination of all those things. It, it it you can use it for a correction. You can use it for negative reinforcement. You can use it in a lot of different ways, and you can teach a lot of different behaviors. But at the end of the day, it is just another communication tool between you and the dog. Mm. There have been. Um a myriad of cases, and I 100% agree with you on first impressions. First impressions, when I looked at the, the prong collar one, it was the very first time it was ever introduced to me, which was back in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a We had an American guy that came out and brought some material out, and one of them was a prong collar. And he showed it to me and he said, uh, I think this would really help clean up a lot of behaviour that your dog's doing. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I looked at the collar and I said, dude, that is the, that is the nastiest looking thing I've ever seen. And I said, I'm not putting that on my dog. You've got to be kidding me. And he, he kind of looked at me with a bit of disbelief and he goes, why? And I said, are you serious right now? Like, look at this. Is it just a, like a like a, a neck stabber? It, it is. It, it'll rip my dog's neck, you know. Like it, it, this just looks legit horrible. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I, I agree with you. The image doesn't look good. And I said, it looks like it's built to torture dogs. And he said, look, I'll tell you what. He goes, if I put this on your dog and your dog has the reaction that you're thinking, that you're conjuring in your head, if it has that type of reaction, I'll give you 100 bucks cash. And he said, and I'll give it to you in American dollars so it's worth more than your bucks. And I said, 100 bucks. And he said, yep. And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to do it. And he said, well, why don't you at least give me the benefit of the doubt that I know what I'm talking about and that I've put these on hundreds of dogs over in the US before he said, I know how you're feeling. And he said, because a lot of people in the US are feeling the same way. Mm-hmm. And he said, but once they actually get over the hurdle of, of putting it on the dog and seeing how effective it is. Uh, and I said, well, look, you haven't led me astray so far. I'll trust you. But if it, I can see my dog in a lot of discomfort, I want it off straight away. And he said, yeah, well, that's not, not a problem. So one of the exercises I was having problems with was the dog was forging and healing all the time. Now, I mean, not I don't mean just forging head a little bit. I mean, he was pulling practically not healing. It looked more like a social walk where the dog was just charging out in front of me. We put it on him. He leant into it. Saw an immediate change in the dog. I'm, I'm talking immediate change. He didn't wince. He didn't cry. Look, he was a tough dog. I'm not. I'm not going to yeah, sugarcoat yeah. this. He's a tough dog. But he, I knew how that dog showed discomfort at things. He did not. He didn't growl. He didn't turn back. He he just leant into it, and I could see that it was causing discomfort. So he moved out of it, and you could see the. The, the learning um, happened. The learning happened because the relief happened from the discomfort immediately. So the dog learned to actually control where his place was based on how the collar felt. Mm. And if I, again, this is another one of those things where if you hadn't witnessed it with your own two eyes, in the time at the moment, you would think somebody was shitting you telling you the story, which people no doubt who don't like them now think that you and I are doing with them now. Mm. However, I was there, I saw it, and I witnessed it immediately. Well, I'm telling you now, I was converted straight away and I bought it. 
I actually said, I'll buy that. I said, I've never in, you know, like in the last three years seen my dog behave so well with one little device. Now, when we took the device off, he goes, now what I also want you to do is have a look at your dog's neck. He said, there's no scars, there's no cuts. He said, because it's not designed to cut. And he was grinding it into his own skin. And he said, now I've got a lot of pain receptors, very close, you know, nerve receptors close to my skin, sweat glands and so forth, which have got nerves close to the surface of the skin. He said, dogs don't have that. He said, they still feel pain. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. he said, they don't feel it the same way we do. So he was grinding it up and down his skin. He said, it doesn't, it's not built to stab and penetrate the skin. He said, what it does, like is what you said before, it pinches. So the dog leans in, the prongs start to collect up. So they, they pinch against the skin. So people have said to me before, oh, it must hurt the dog. Well, it, there, is, course, a, there is discomfort the there. There is actual discomfort. But that picture that people put up on the internet and it circulated, it went everywhere with a dog that's got these horrific-looking yeah. puncture marks all around its neck. I would dare say that there was something – I'm almost I'm, – I'm not really a betting guy, but if I was – I would almost say that somebody probably, A, left that on and that's skin necrosis where it's just grown into the neck of the dog so it's penetrated by pressure over a period of time or B, more likely conclusion that somebody sharpened the prongs and stabbed the shit out of the dog's neck with it. Yeah. Look. It it can only be one of those two things. People have burnt their own babies in baths before by not paying attention to how much hot water they put in there Mm. and just throwing a kid in the bath and the kids have got mild to severe burns by doing things like that. Now, it's not that they mean to do those type of things. It's just that they're not paying attention. Yeah. So there's plenty of things. But there are also um, sons of bitches out there who do terrible things to their own children. Mm. You know, they're just cruel and depraved sort of people. And people think, well, if it works well now, why don't I just sharpen it with a chisel? Yeah. Not with a chisel, with a file. And uh, with it's, punch. it's going to work here with the punch and it's going to work 10 times as good. If it gives this type of pinch, then it's going to be much more sensitive. Yeah. Whereas that now it is actually built to penetrate the, the skin and the neck of the dog. Yeah. And that becomes very dangerous and, and um, that's not the tool it was designed to be. Yeah. So I know there's people out there who's going to absolutely disagree with everything that I'm saying about prong collars because they have a mindset about it. They have a, a, a view on it and they don't like them. And I'm not trying to convince you that it's the tool that you should just go out and buy. Mm. I'm not trying to convince anybody that it's the tool they should just go out and buy because it doesn't matter what you do and what you use. There's, there's always going to be something that you're going to do, which is going to cause a problem for your dog. So if you don't need it, you shouldn't have it. It's not one of those tools that you have to rush out and buy just to have it for the yeah. sake of having it. But um, there are certainly some dogs out there who have had a life-changing experience who once again have limited their chances of being put down over a, a very easily fixable behaviour that everybody else goes, well, it can't be fixed, it can't be fixed. But at the same time, they won't use or recommend the tool just mm. because of their own uh, fear or, or personal prejudice towards it. I think the prong collar used correctly is an excellent tool. Mm. It, it's very confronting and so... It is for, very. So I don't use it as often on clients like pet dogs as I would like to. I'm not a huge prong collar user, but there's certainly times where I think this is the, the right tool, but you have to build people up to it a little bit. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I'll try and expend, so I might try a slip leash or something that it, I know isn't going to work so that I can say that people are, okay, now maybe we go on to this tool because it's a bit more effective. The, the, only, the only time that I go is like a first, okay, we're putting prong collar on this dog like straight up 
is I think I've mentioned this before, is if the dog can outpower the person and drag them around, then mm. we go, okay, well, we have to stop this immediately just for safety. We just have to. As I said, and the what highlighted that for me was turning up to a client's place where I knew the dog as a puppy and now it was an adult doman and it dragged her through traffic to get to me excited and we just said straight away, this is too dangerous. Mm. You just can't you just can't use this situation. We have to give you a mechanical advantage over this dog. And there is an element of pain involved in it, of course. That that's how it works. It, and it's naive of people to say, Oh, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt. Well, it, if it didn't hurt, it didn't, wouldn't work. Yeah. You have to concede that. But it's not designed to hurt all the time. It, it's pressure that the dog learns. And sometimes, well, it's, it's certainly... It's early stages. Yeah. And that's what, um, again, I think people have got to pick up on is it's fundamentally based around early stage learning. Yeah. And again, it's one of these things that the dog can learn to control itself. Yeah, that's right. And, and it is just communication between mm. you and the dog. And if I were an online arguer, I would love to point out to a lot of people that say this is just for hurting dogs and shutting them down and whatever, it is... I use a prong collar as an activation tool. Prong collar for me is a do, is do this, go, it's activate. Yeah, it, um, it can rev dogs up and build drive. Yeah, and that totally non-invasive, no one puts, no one argues when you want to put a slip lead on their dog. I use that for like calming, like stop that, slow down. Mm. Like I would shut a dog down easier with a, a slip lead than I would with a prong collar because a prong collar is what I want to activate. It's a do. Mm. So it's a bit of an oxymoron. People don't really understand that and, and they think that if you're using a prong collar, you're out to hurt dogs. And so if you're in New South Wales, by the way, they're in Queensland and who knows about those other states. They're not illegal. To they're use. not illegal. You can totally use them. And, yeah. and I've had clients get harassed using them. And people have told me they've, they're absolutely convinced that they are illegal and I've said, show me in the legislation. Yeah. And, and then they come back and said, well, they should be. Yeah. And I said, well, they're not. And, um, you know, at this point in time until – Somebody has a PC meltdown. So again, this leads me into, a, and I know you've been on the end of this stick as well, that people turn around and say, well, you're obviously okay with pain and suffering. <laughs> and I say, well, I'm actually not. I never have been okay with pain and suffering. I'm totally against destroying a good dog that can be that can have its behaviour resolved by a tool, mm-hmm. okay, and a, a short-term go at that because this is something in the evolution of training. It's not something that you have to put on the dog and leave on the dog. It's something, it's a process. Like yeah, I said, it's, it's just a communication tool. Yeah. It's like saying there's a nail hanging out of a bit of timber. What I need now is a hammer to hammer that nail in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now there's two, the length of the timber is too long. Now what I need to do is get a saw and cut the end of that timber off. Well, it's the same thing in your evolution of training. Once you see certain type of behaviors that require a certain type of tool, it should be a selection process that you're being intelligent about, thinking about and going, okay, well, this is the type of tool that's going to rein that in. Mm-hmm. Rather than, like I said, I'm not okay with people just killing dogs, with just saying, oh, well, there's just nothing. Up. Yeah, just give up because my philosophy and my belief doesn't work. So it's okay to kill the dog now. Yeah. I think if the dog is a raving psychopath and there's no way of rehabilitating that dog and there's no useful function for that and that dog can't be brought back down to reason, then, yeah, I'm okay with that dog being put to sleep. Mm. That's a very rare case. That's a very rare case. But I've seen a lot of dogs that have gone to be put down that have been turned around. I know a lot of trainers do. And none of them, when I've spoken to them, are okay with pain and suffering as well. No, exactly. So I guess we've done a few episodes now where we both get caught up in it all and it becomes the us and them podcast a little bit but yeah, it, yeah. It, it is a frustrating thing when you know how to use these tools effectively and you can see a really good application for this and, and you understand this is the right tool 
And it's not that it's my only tool. I understand all these tools. I know what to do, but this is the one that would best suit this dog. And I can't use it because people, because I'm worried about how other people will perceive it, not the dog. He will perceive it the way that I want because I'll, I'll, I'll use it correctly. Mm. It's frustrating. It's, it, it's it very solidly frustrating. pisses me off about the whole us and them thing because it, there's just no need for it. Yeah. Most of the people that I've seen in training in our doctrine are willing to talk to people about it. They're willing to have a conversation and at least see it from their point of view, whereas the them don't want to see it like that. They're basically saying, well, I'm not prepared to talk to you unless you agree with, you know, wholeheartedly with where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's like trying to talk to a vegan about eating meat. They're just not, they're not going to have it. Or a crossfitter about just doing it, <laughs> just do bench press. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. That's probably enough talking about the back and forth on it. And then the last thing I want to talk about, and I just want to keep it really simple and pure and talk about its use instead of justifying its use, is mm-hmm. the e-collar then. Because we've we've gone through our list here, and I, we've really I, I really think that's going to be a podcast on itself to talk yeah, about well, e-collars. But let's just because this is one where it, this, this is a debate that people are going to have for well, a millennia. But let's just explain that all those tools that we've just explained that are, are for application of pressure and release in one form or another, yeah. the e-collar can do all of that, you and can. it is just for communication with the dog, and you can use it for positive reinforcement you can use it for negative reinforcement you can use it for positive punishment and well you can't use it for negative punishment but it is just a means of communicating with the dog and you can pair it to any one of those mechanical devices and give it the same effect Mm. and you can communicate with the dog off leash at distance using that device i think one of the most amazing breakthroughs i ever had in the use of remote trainers was when we were shown how to use uh, low-level stim Mm. as a clicker yeah. And again, had I not seen it with my own two eyes, I would never have believed it. Yeah. And I've told this story to people where I've said low-level stim, the dog feels that and then goes, oh, okay, well, I, I can now run for food because it's been used in that same acquisition process where it's been the feeling and then the food, the feeling, the food. And people are going, are you serious? You put your dog into a painful position to make it want food? And I'm saying, you can barely feel this. Like even on my skin, which is, again, we've got more sensitive pain receptors at the surface of our skin than dogs have. Like, And I'm not, I don't want to go into that whole what we feel, yeah, what dogs feel thing. If it were to be a podcast, that's when you can go and that sort of thing. But this yep. is just the mechanics of how it works. But the reality is, is that I can't feel the stim in any, like it's it's the faintest of faintest feelings and yet the dog responds to it. Yeah. The dog runs over and goes, cool, I'm getting food. Okay, so the whole acquisition process takes place and the dog then treats the stim as a conditioned stimuli. Yeah, so at a lower level before you, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is that there are, you can use low levels on a knee collar and it just be a communication tool and it has the value you give it. Mm. It doesn't hurt when it's low and therefore it only has the value you give it and you pair that in whatever technique you use. You can link it to any one of those mechanical devices and give it that value or you can condition it to any outcome and give it that value. Exactly like Glenn just said, like if you get your e-collar, go stim, click food, stim, click food, stim, click food. Eventually when you go stim, the dog knows that that's, that's it. Yeah. Of course the e-collar does eventually reach a level where it is painful and then you're into a punishment. And that pain, that level is, uh, again, at, at different levels for different species. Yeah, determined by the dog. I mean, I've seen classrooms where people have passed it around and people can't feel it on a level six and you get it, give it to somebody else and they go, oh, God, I felt it. Well, at a, at Bart's seminar in Brisbane, I think it was Jess, we were doing 
thing together where we were both wearing the receiver that was paired. So we had the same one and I wasn't feeling it and she was begging him to stop. Mm. So it's, and we're at it on the same spot. Like everything is different. Everybody's different. Every I've dog got is one different. better. Where a seminar where I was at, the host was handing around a collar and he was saying to people, oh, can you feel that? And people going, yeah, yeah, I can feel it. Wasn't even turned on. <laughs> uh, and that was, that was actually amazing that people had that mindset that, yeah, I can feel something. And he's going, how much can you feel? And they're going, oh, it's actually a little bit unbearable. <laughs> and like I'm thinking, I wonder what level he's got it on. And, you know, it gets to the end of it. He goes, oh, there you go, it's switched off. Yeah. And he just showed everyone. And they're going, did you just turn it off now? And he goes, it's been off the whole time. And he goes, and I'll go one step further, there's no battery in it. Mm-hmm. Just to show that it was it was never on. Yeah. So that was... Well, you know what? That actually proves my point in that e-collar has the value you give it. And so if you go into that thinking the e-collar is a pain tool, it's going to deliver you pain mm. no matter what comes out of it, even if it's nothing. Yeah, once you're, once you're in that belief and that mindset, there's, again, yeah. for some people, there's just no changing it. Yeah. So we will do a whole episode on e-collars um, yep. and we'll talk about that in depth. But what I want people to understand is that an e-collar at the lower levels, before you go into the level that would actually cause pain, just a communication level, ha- only has the value you give it. Yep. Whether you pair it to something or whether you uh, condition it to mean something, that's what the value it has to the dog. And e-collars get a bad rap for lots of reasons, but what people forget as well is we've talked about mechanical markers. Most e-collars have a tone and you can use that for whatever you you want to train that to do. Like I know the army guys, they require e-collars that have a tone and a vibrate Mm -hmm. because they give those two things a function and it allows them to tell the dog to either recall or to down at distance tactically without having to yell. Or even when they're close to the dog, so they don't have to give away their position and get them in the dog shot. Yeah, exactly. So Mm -hmm. it's a problem because even they have to fight the battle of being allowed to use these things, Mm -hmm. but it puts the dogs in danger. Even if they were never to use a stim function again, they need that tone and vibrate down because they can see big picture or maybe they're looking at a feed from an overhead drone or whatever. They can see things a dog can't Mm -hmm. and they need to be able to communicate with their dogs at distance to keep them safe. I think the great level ground for any of these tools that we've been talking about is rather than the us and them groups fighting so vehemently about it is coming together and saying well what we think should happen then is if people are going to use it they have to do a course on it. Yeah and I think you'll struggle to find anyone that would oppose that on on our side. On the them side they would but on the us side I'm, I'm pretty sure that people would go yeah I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I think that there should be a proper course uh, written and approved that all parties can sit down and say, well, that's fair. I had it explained to me pretty well. I used to say if someone's intention to cause harm to a dog, they'll do it no matter what. So of course. like if I wanted to hurt a dog with a yellow crayon, I could do that. Mm. What someone said to me was like, yeah, but you're unlikely to accidentally hurt a dog with a yellow crayon. And so that that is a very fair point for the use of all these tools and the knee collar especially is for that training because mm. – good intentions could go bad just not knowing what you're doing. So I totally support there being some kind of regulation to the purchase, sale and and use of e-collars. I 100% support that. Well, you've got to um, give a driver's license to learn how to drive a car. Exactly. It's your agreement with state and federal law that you understand how to drive a car and how not to kill people and maim them and do that, but people still do anyway. Yeah. I think Simple Minds years ago sang a song called um, People Are People. Um, people are peoples. You'll get so many people who are rowing. Are people. 
who are people, yeah, but so many of them are rowing their boat in the same direction where there's so many of them who for some reason they get in the boat and they're facing the other way. Yeah. And they're doing everything they can to drag you back from doing that. I don't get those people. I never have. Again, there's no point in trying to bend your brain around it. No, that's right. Sometimes it's just you've got to have enough support behind it and enough recognition that people can see that at the end of the day, it, see at the end of the day, the silly thing about this on both sides is it both comes from an empathetic point. Yeah. Where, where everyone people, thinks they're doing the right everyone thing. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. So the us side thinks, well, the tools that we need are preventing dogs from being put down. And the them says, well, you don't need these tools. You don't need all these aggressive styles of dogs and so forth. But I, d- I still haven't found any validity in that training. Because if somebody can come to me and show me that, all dogs across the board, not just the ones that they're spending all day, every day training or ones that are perfectly receptive to training, but all dogs can be trained without these methods, then, I mean, I'm willing to sit down and listen to them. I would love to have uh, someone on the podcast that had an opposing view. Yeah, why not? If there's someone out there that would like to come on and have some reasonable discourse, please contact us because I'd love to sit down and talk about that and we can discuss why we think one thing and, and why you might think another. Yeah. What do you think? No, I, I'm all for it as long as it stays civil and there's no... Yeah, exactly. I don't want, the one thing I don't want to turn this into is a topic of resent between us. No, You exactly. know, where people are just hating on each other and it, it, at the end of the day it, it becomes a, a fight on egos rather than it does the actual science behind yeah. it. and it's not the flavour we want to give to this, but when you're talking about these tools you have to... It's inevitable that you, you sort of do have to confront that there is opposition to them. Mm. So that's it for, so what we've done is we had a bunch of tools that no one could oppose. (laughs) No one could get angry at a clicker except you 15 years ago that strictly for sissies. Yeah, well, I didn't like them. I didn't want to use them. I didn't even want to acknowledge them, yeah. So we had a couple of tools, clack, clacks, marker boards that everybody likes, then some some controversy in the middle, and now we can just get on to talking about some other tools. So we can finish it like on a compliment sandwich where we (laughs) start with a nice slice. That's what I was going to say, a controversy sandwich. So we have just the the, the evil bit in the middle, and now we can talk about... The next thing on our list is a, a leashes, right? Yeah, good leash. A good leash that's worth its weight in gold yep. and a high-quality leash. Yep. Always relate leashes to, uh, and I've always said this for years, is that I always relate leashes to uh, good shock absorbers and tyres on your car. Mm-hmm. They're the things that are keeping your car uh, effectively controllable on the road. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a good leash. If you've got your leash is your umbilical cord to your dog, yep. you can control a lot of behaviour, you can restrain your dog in, in undue situations. But the reason why I say a good leash instead of just a leash is because so many people go out and buy nice leashes with diamantes and all sorts of shit all over them um, where they end up slicing their hands when the dog goes tearing through them. Not needed. Get the bling for when your dog is under control. Mm. If, if your dog is under effective control and you've got a conditioned behavior and mindset with your dog, then fine, go and get yourself whatever type of equipment you want. Mm. But until that time, just make sure you, you're focusing solely on good quality reputable training gear yeah. that's been made and designed for, for dogs for training. Now that comes in all shapes and sizes. Little dogs, obviously little leads, light, more lighter weight, larger dogs, larger lead and better clasps that are actually going to restrain the dog. And it depends what you're doing. Like I, I use a huge variety of leashes. Mm. Like if I'm doing some finer sort of precision work and I am using one of like a prong collar, I use a, like a, 
a very thin leather leash that holds some body. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and it gives, um, a, gives it a bit of movement. Yeah, I'm quite particular about the leashes I use for training. Mm. I want them to feel a particular way. I like leather ones, but then that's also a pain in the ass because they're leather, and you know, there's the issue that they they just break. That's the issue with leather leads. That eventually they will break, and yep. they they don't necessarily have to give you any warning before that's going to happen. It just just snaps one day. It's yeah. Well, they get a bit of dry rot in them or something like that. Yeah. And I've seen that so many times where you're just thinking there's no warning sign or no like tear or rip or anything in the fabric. And like you said, it's all, all of a sudden like the fibers just let go all of a sudden. Yeah. It just goes pop, and the dogs went one way and you went the other. Yeah, that's not sad. I don't like leather leashes. I like them very much, but I prefer them for like a little bit of precision work where it's quite tactile. I can feel yep. I'm more connected to the dog. With, yeah, I know what you mean. With that. And if you are going to get a leather lead, make sure you oil it up too. Mm. But I mean, who does that? No one does, right? You, it's good in theory, but most people don't well, really that, care. That's, they're if they're going to prevent that dry rot popping from happening, then, you know, a good bit of beeswax oil or linseed rubbed into it, something won't actually eat or destroy the fabric of the leather. Yeah. Well, that's why for long lines I like getting the – is it the Brammer web or whatever Jason has that, those ones that are like that synthetic leather? Because mm. you can you can just put it away wet, and you know if you if you're using a long line, it's usually for tracking or it's dragging all over the floor. Basically, it's going to get wet the, the, and dirty. That, that material actually lasts for five hundred years plus. Yeah. There's no going anywhere with that sort of stuff. I mean, that stuff has to burn or be dipped in acid before it's going to yeah. start breaking down. It's pretty hardy sort of stuff. Yeah. So for long line, long leads, I like them very much. Yeah. Um, they can be slippery. Yeah. When they're wet. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But for, <laughs> but yeah, for that exact reason that they can get wet and you can just put them away and you don't have to fuck around. Yep. They're, they're great. Mm. Um, yeah, so leashes, that's it. Get a good one. Get the one yeah, that feels get a good, good one. in your hand. And again, if, if you don't know, ask somebody. You know, mm. go go along to a trainer and um and or, or just email somebody and say, This is the type of dog I've got. Give me a good recommendation of three types of leads that I could use. Yeah. All right. Trick pouch. Yeah. Tree pouches, uh, and this is one of those sort of things that I, I thought was a useless, stupid, girly sissy bag that you would wear. It's like having a fanny pack on that. It just looks <laughs> like stupid. carrying around a handbag. Yeah, it did. It looked, it just, <laughs> in the early days, I, but how wrong could you be? Yeah. On so many of these things, it's, it's just like you're so opposed to the use of it for your own, again, cognitive dissonance, I guess, is that you're looking at it and just thinking, oh, this is useless. But, I can't think of a time where I'm going out to do training with my dog and I haven't got my treat pouch on. Mm. It's one of the most useful little bits of kit that you can actually have, especially if some of the good ones. Some of them can be ridiculous. They've got too many bells and whistles on them. and yeah. uh, But uh, some of them with a couple of extra pockets where you can stick some, you know, a notepad or a clicker in and, and they're fairly non-absorbent inside. So if you've got like oilier types of foods like your meats and so forth. Or if like you're that, feeding raw. Or if you're feeding raw, they're not sludging through and dripping yeah. uh, garbage and fats all over your legs. And they're easy to wash out too. So if you are getting it, those silicon ones, what do you what, what do you think of those? Yeah, so I've, I've got one. They're, they're really good. They are excellent actually. Yeah. Like I, I really can't fault them. Mine's sort of tearing a little bit on the side. Are they Australian made or? Yeah, well, it's that Ryan Tate guy. He, he's, it's his company. I think they're about 50 bucks or something, which is a fair bit to spend on a treat pouch, but I, I definitely recommend them. I think they're highly worth it. Mm. Mine is sort 50 of, bucks. That's pretty exy. Yeah, it's totally worth it though. I think, okay. it's, I think it's totally worth it because it, you can turn inside out and wash it. it it's excellent. It's a good size. Don't of, tear. I, like I know that well, silicon sometimes can get a little bit. Mine has a tiny little tear on the end, but I, I wouldn't say the way I use it is fair use. Okay. Like I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't, 
I would never complain that it's damaged because I actually, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I go through tree pouches like really quick and this one's lasted a long time. That's because you let your dog smash into yeah. them. And well, I, I require him to smash into it. So yeah. when I mark him, I want him and I fight him for it. So I mark, he has to jump onto me and stick his head in it and eat. And all the while I try to push him out of it. Yep. So it's not fair use. Okay. <laughs> like I've never complained. I've broken heaps of people's treat pouches and the silicon one is doing really well. I love it. I think it's really good gear. Okay. Even though mine is starting to tear a little bit, I I acknowledge that's 100% my fault. I'm not using it the way it was designed. Fair call. But I get a lot of power out of that. I like the, I like treating the dog like that. It, it's, it's excellent. It works. It's, it's a training methodology that works well for you and you're happy with it and your dog understands it. It's good communication. Yeah. It's not for everyone because it's, like, it wrecks your treat pouch <laughs> and gets you scratched and get, on the groin. And yeah, gets you kicked and gets you knocked over <laughs> and gets you filthy, you get dog jumped all over you. It's yeah. a pain in the ass, but it, it brings me some power that I want. Makes but sense. yeah, treat pouch. And then I, I used to use a vest. When, when I was at Michael Ellis' school, they used the vest there, the herd obedience vest, and it's excellent. The vests are really good. Yeah, I've got a vest. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I really, like my vest. I really like that. And I've got the Euro Joe one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think the vests are really good if you're in your luring, you can, you can, Keep, you know, it's on both sides. It's mm. less of a cue for the dog and you can reward from both hands very effectively. You can have your ball or tug or whatever on the back and you can pop that from either side. So yep. if you're working at precision and you want the dog to not be anticipating the reward from a particular side, I think that's the, the real power of the vest versus the pouch. And the vest I think is easier to fade out. Like the problem I have with tree pouches in general is – it's a cue for the dog yep. and the dog can look and go, ah, no pouch, no, no work. Yep. Um, so in winter, I tend to not use a treat pouch too much and I just reward from like if I'm wearing a hoodie, like I keep my treats in the, in the pouch of the hoodie so that mm. it, it always is the same picture to the dog. Forrest Mickey has a, his own brand, the, dog, the D-Town ones. Yeah, uh, yeah the, exactly. The like Brent that, yeah. and Cat sell them through their business down in Melbourne and they're actually really good for that as well because they've got yeah. a, a back and front. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got one. They're excellent. Yeah. They're, they're excellent. Yep. And I think that the whole intention of that is exactly that, right? There's, there's a fine line, right? Like where your dog vest is apparel that is for dog training. Mm. That's but the like detail one looks like it's uh, it's streetwear that it's you a can streetwear, use yeah. for dog training. Yeah, it was it was um, a, a bit of smart design. Yeah, and, and so yeah, you can look cool in it, but it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, look at me in my detail hoodie. Yeah, but, but it's, it's less on the, the cue for the dog. It's just it's yeah, it just looks, looks like something you would throw on in a, on a cold day. Yeah. And you Not can practical trial for um, for days like today where it's a scorching hot. Yeah. yeah, but and that's then, where a vest comes in to play with. Yeah. Uh, I love the D-Town hoodie. I've got one. Brent sent me up one when they, they had them. Thank you very much, buddy. I love it and I um, wear it regularly in cooler months, but mm. um, that's where a, a vest takes over on days where it is summer where you can just wear a singlet and chuck your vest on. Yeah, and get the guns out. and the Get the guns out. Paul Doyle uh, style. Yeah. Oh, Paul. That's his second mention for today. It is. <laughs> okay. We could actually probably do a podcast on Paul. We should get Paul in one day. Oh, God. So... <laughs> The treach pouch and vest and stuff we've done. Another thing you were talking about is using a ball. I'm really loving those. Duro foam balls. Yeah, the Duro foam balls. Uh, Randy actually loves it. He really, really goes crazy for it. Good type ball. Um, I only saw it uh, originally when Yuga had one. Mm. So I think Jason was bringing them out at one stage and um, there's a there's Jason's one. There's also the, the Starmark ones, yeah. um, which are all quite good. And what I do like about them is it's soft penetrable sort of foam that the dog can actually bite. It can actually puncture it without causing any damage to the ball or the dog's teeth. Yeah. 
So the dog can give it a really good squashing, bite into it, and unlike some other balls that are probably just a little bit too intense, some of those very thick rubber gut type of balls, uh, I bought some of them originally from a supplier overseas and they're okay. From the same supplier, I bought the Durofoam ones. I got them at a really good price and brought them out here and uh, tried it with the dog and he just loves it. He really, uh, as soon as he knows I've got it on me, he just lights up straight mm-hmm. away. He likes the way it actually feels in his mouth as a reward. So yeah. it's uh, something that for dogs that do like a predatory reward, such as a ball or something like that, ball tug, those Durofoam balls are fantastic. Yeah. They're very good. Yeah. We sell them here if you're interested in getting one. I'm not trying to sales pitch it because you can get them all over town. But uh, if you are looking for them and find them hard to get, we've got them. Yeah. They're good. And for ex- they're good on the dog's teeth as well. They are they? very good. And they're not as abrasive as, say, even a tennis ball that will grind away at the enamel of the teeth. They're not. I actually that. didn't know that. Well, I, I've known it for a long time now, but for years, I mean, giving a dog a tennis ball was something that everybody did. But, yeah. Um, it was actually a vet that told me in Melbourne way back when and he said mate you do know that the coarse material the little fibers that are on the tennis balls aren't really uh, not it's not that they aren't really they're just not good for dogs teeth yeah and i said uh, in what way and exactly as you said he said it, it can actually wear down the enamel as the dog is is grinding its teeth up and down on it it doesn't do any great service for the surface of the tooth yeah. so he said i wouldn't recommend him and he was the actually one he said get like a squashy rubber gut or something like that if yeah. you're going to use a ball look it, it's hardly you know a tennis ball isn't the end of the world it's a reward toy it's, it's on the end of the world and people have been with, using for years yeah it's when you leave it with a dog though and they just sit it, there that's all right. day just going crunch 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 yep that's when you, it's going to fuck up a dog's teeth doing that. However, when you're involved in training and you realise that, you know, some things that just shouldn't be left with a dog anyway. Yeah, just exactly. Like, as you shouldn't leave training equipment on a, dog, on a dog unattended. You shouldn't leave reward toys with dogs unattended. I can't tell you how many times people buy tugs and people will come to me and say, oh, I'll, I'll see them buying like two or three tugs over a period of like a couple of weeks. Mm. I said, are you doing this as a backup tug, like one for your car, one for your house, one for, you know, your training? And they said, oh, no, I just left it with a dog and I came home and he pulled it apart. And I said, well, why don't you try not leaving it with a dog mm. and using it as a supervised reinforcement rather than something you're just throwing in the backyard? And I said, there's plenty of other things that you can do, like a Kong with peanut butter that you can put in the backyard if you want to give your dog a Safer. an activity that's that's more regulated and the dog can actually bite it and play with it and do yep. whatever it needs to do without screwing it up and having to buy 10 over the period of a year. Yeah. Lead a horse to water, can't make a drink. (laughs) Well, that's a good one because our next one is Tug. Mm. Tug Um, toys, I mean, I think anybody, again, anybody that's got a dog that does enjoy that gamey style predatory reinforcement such as balls or tugs or anything like that, I think it's part of the toolkit you should have. If you're one of these people who've got a dog that's clumsy with its latching hold of things and your fingers are generally going to get in the way, I'd generally recommend a two-handled tug, mm. something that you can bring the dog onto without risk of getting your fingers in the way of. I know many people who've got males and shepherds that are very, very quick and they'll mistarget the ball because the person will move the hand in either in direction of the dog coming in or, or try and pull it away and the dog will compensate for that. And yeah. Then, but totally accidentally, but it'll grab them by the hand. I actually still, I put a lot of pet dog people onto tugs. A lot of people, you know, they have like an old piece of rope or, you know, those kind of rope things you get from a pet store. Yeah, and yeah, like a frayed rope. Yeah. It's got like a million strings in it. Yeah, so I try and... Don't, avoid, don't use them. Yeah, I try and talk people out of using them. They're actually that. bad for the dog because you'll, you'll probably find that the dog will swallow them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they'll undo the knot in it. 
I'll just grind through it and then you'll find um, strands of string in your dog's turd in the morning. Yeah. So a lot, of, good. a lot of people sort of balk at the idea because they think, oh, that's a competitive sports or obedience or bite work type tool. It's just a reward. That's right. It's just a reward. So I, I, I put a lot of people into a, a tug and what do they cost? They're like 25 bucks or something. Like it's not that expensive for a good tug. And if exactly, if you, if you don't leave it with the dog and you just use it as a reward toy, it'll last you a, for a normal dog. It's going to last you a dog's life. Absolutely. And any, any type of, I mean, I know chihuahuas that have played with dog tugs, like large breed dog tugs, and they've had a ball with them. Mm. I've known a lot of large breeds that won't even bite normal tugs. Just, yeah. They've got no joy in them whatsoever. So if the dog doesn't like playing with those type of things, then there's no point in having one. Yeah. However, if, you, if your dog does enjoy those type of games, uh, you can use it as a, a final reinforcer. Sometimes uh, with those type of things, what you've got to be mindful of too, and we were talking about that recently at a seminar, is that uh, if you show the ball or the tug to the, do- the dog, at that point in time, that's all the dog thinks about. It, mm. it creates an obsession in the dog and the dog won't, you won't be able to get that fine articulate behavior that you're trying to shape into the dog. So generally with that, you trim that work up with the food to start with and terminate the behavior, end it all by giving the dog the tug or the, the ball, saying, yeah. okay, that's enough for the day, let's rock now. You know, I still encounter people who are told by breeders never to play tug with their dog. That still gets around. Yeah, they're going to bring out this... Um, you to make the dog aggressive. ...competitive, dominant aggression, yeah. and the dog's going to turn on them. And, and if... What's odd is often those people give the same advice that if you find yourself in a game of tug with your dog over a toy or whatever or you an must item, win. you must win. And then you've got to spit in the dog's mouth just to <laughs> claim uh, Pin him on his back <laughs> and, and spit in his mouth. Yep. Yeah, there's some ridiculous wife tales. And, I mean, even, you know, some ones that are recently going around that you shouldn't feed your dog red meat and, you know, oh. that you'll blood your dog. And uh, there's just some some people, I don't know. That was I, the stupidest thing I've seen in a long time. I actually... <laughs> I read the whole thing just to make sure that I wasn't dreaming. Well, I wasn't misinterpreting what mm. was going on. <laughs> and I gave it the laugh emoji. It's <laughs> like, you can't be serious. It's so fucking stupid. Don't feed a dog red meat. Who says that? What, on what planet can you not feed a dog red meat? Unplanet vegan. Well, oh, that would be acceptable. That mm. would be the uh, decent reason. But to say, oh, it's, it's on the list of foods that you shouldn't feed dog because it would cause behavioral problems. I would rather have the conversation with a vegan than with that guy. Yeah. If you were saying, if you came to me and said, I, you shouldn't feed your dog red meat laden with chemicals and preservatives because sure. it's going to cause behavioral problems, then I'd say you have a sound argument. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling me that don't feed the, your dog something that is biologically designed to eat and digest and function from, you're right. I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Go away. Yeah, go away. Go, um, and, go and find another industry where you can still pedal snake oil. Geez, we're good at segues because our next item and last is, is, is food. Food, food mm, type. Food types. So you can feed your dog red meat. You can. Yep. That's S- it. Successfully. <laughs> like even before humans have been diversifying any type of food product, dogs have been selecting red meat types, you know, and probably white meat types, I don't know, but they've been selecting meat types for um, a millennia before um, our inevitable matching of species. Mm. So people talk about their superiority over intelligent thinking with animals. <laughs> when I read posts, silly posts like that, then one has to question yeah. the motives and the soundness of where people get that sort of material from. Yeah. 
talking about food. If there pipes. is a good argument, sorry, if there is a good argument, like you were talking about before. There's a spare microphone here coming in. There's a spare microphone. Come in and sit down and, and tell us the actual science behind it. Yeah. Not the opinion, the science behind it. I, I, you know, I'll settle for your observations. I just would love to hear what can, what can, has led you to feel that way. We should have like a sound effect, like a lol sound effect <laughs> that we can just play. If we get someone in like that. A morning that, radio show. Yeah, just like lol. Um, okay, <laughs> staying on track. Um, food type. Food type. So mm. I think that if you're really taking training seriously, you have to do that with existential food. It has your training treats need to be real food, not treats. Mm-hmm. They need to be part of your that dog's calorie intake or really yep. feel very strongly about that. Something that really frustrates me regularly dealing with training people's pets is say you, um, I've had people ask me to teach their dog a particular behavior and they want me to teach it, put it on cue so they can have it later. No worries. I'm happy to do that. They don't want to be involved in the training process. They just want mm-hmm. a dog that will do the thing. And then when I get to their house to train the dog, there's a half eaten bowl of raw chicken on the floor. The dog is so full. It can't even be bothered eating that. Yep. And I, I say, well, and the dog's 10 kilos overweight. And yeah, well, even if it's not, even if the dog is regulating itself, I, I just say, well, I can't train this dog. Like you're, you're left with nothing now. Mm. The dog is, is satiated. It's got no desire. Yeah. There's people doing that with their own dogs as well. They just they feed the dog and then they, they want to stay as positive as they can. So they, you know, the dog's not performing the way they might like. So they want to withhold some, like, like a negative. Well, it's like what Skinner did with his pigeons. He kept them at three quarter weight. Yeah. So if you want to apply, if you want the withholding of food to be a punishment, it has to actually be a punishment. It has to be food that the dog's not getting. And so if you're feeding the dog separately, there is no consequence yep. to, to withholding the food. So then that, that opens us up to sort of, and I don't think you'll find too many people that will argue with that. I think everyone that's really taking training seriously knows that treats is dessert and you shouldn't be training for dessert. You should be training for dinner. Yep. But then if you want to feed anything other than kibble, you're in a bit of a tricky situation here, right? Like how do you, like if you want to feed raw or if you feed. Well, I guess in the episode we did with Narelle when we were talking about raw feeding, we concluded that total raw feeding is difficult mm-hmm. and we're doing a uh, like a cross-section of raw kibble, raw and kibble. Yeah. So what I would probably suggest is that you could use your kibble, your existential food kibble as your uh, as your shaping behaviours. You could use that to reinforce. Yeah. And, you know, the termination cue could be that the dog then gets a, a small ball of, of meat for doing yeah. the job well. And if not, it doesn't get that small ball of meat. Yeah. So it's had sufficient calorie intake through the kibble. And nutrition. Yeah, and nutrition, you know, because it's a good choice of kibble too. It's a healthy type. It's it's one that you've spent a bit of time researching the the benefits of it. Uh, and then, like I said, if the, it's like if you're a car salesman and you're working in, or any a lot of people who work in those type of sales roles, they get what's called a retainer. The retainer is just enough to keep you going you can't really afford any less. So the bonus comes as you start selling more cars or more houses. Yeah. So after a period of time, you start to realize if I sell two cars this week, then I'm going to eat better. I'm going to pay more bills and be in a better financial situation, which is what the dog starts to recognize as well. Mm. If I start to perform better, the better, the better I perform, the, the better I'm going to eat. Yeah. Once again, this is something the dog learns to control itself. Yeah. It's starting to self-regulate on these type of things because the dog is understanding I can change my stars based on just changing a few small details in my behavior. Yeah, I 100% agree with you and that's largely what I do. I have played around with delivering food through like 
tricky means. So first of all, that silicon pouch, that's why it's so good because you can just turn it inside out and wash it and you can you can literally- Feed sloppy it. food in there. Yeah. And and the way I do it by letting the dog dig his head in there, it's not like I have to handle it and then I'm stuck. Okay, now I'm in, I'm wherever I was training and I've got dirty hands, whatever. He sticks his head in there and eats. Um, so that's really good. Other things I played with is freezing it. So like making meatballs basically, like with whatever, you know, whatever I'm feeding that's raw, I make little balls and I freeze them. Damn, and- I've just had a good idea. But what? I'm going to tell you off the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is just made like it's it's raw feeding where where I can, oh, man, this is good. This is gold. All right, well, let's wrap this up. Uh, the other thing I do is as well, and um, I've, 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 I will tell, we will tell people if, if it, we'll, Pat and I are going to trial it and see if it works well. And then if it does work well, um, yeah, it's ours. <laughs> well, I hope it's not what I'm about to say because the other thing I've done a fair bit of as well is blending food up and see there's these baby packets. I think they're called mashies or something. So it's, you know, like a squeeze tube basically. And I've done a fair bit of that. And I started doing that when I was had brandy. It, it, it's similar to that. Yeah. Oh, I've just given it away. You, you kind of have, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's very similar to that. Yeah, well, it, that's very effective. Because both of these things are the problem with feeding raw on the go is it's it's a disaster, it's a mess. Yep. And if you're out somewhere training and you, it's not convenient, but that that's the two things I've used to do it is those silicon pouches are very handy because you can just put your slops in there, small balls and freezing them, and then those baby packets. So give those a go. Yep. And the baby packets have the added bonus of being hilarious once the dog figures out they can like watching a dog try and suck is <laughs> is very funny. <laughs> So there's an added bonus of the hilarity in that. Yep. All right. Well, that's all the tools that we've written on our list there. There's probably plenty more that we've forgotten there's, there's, about. Yeah, there's a lot more different things that we could talk about, but they're just things that um, we generally see on a regular yeah, basis. Yeah, and use. And, and that was the idea is we got a lot of questions about what do you use? Yeah, what do you use and why? Mm. So that's it. And we'll, we'll do more detail, I think, Certainly, as, as questions arise, as people are starting to come out and say, "Well, why and how and yeah. when and what," you know, we, we're happy to lay that out in more detail. Yeah, and but in particular, some of those controversial tools. There's there's a whole episode. You know, there's a week's learning in all of those things. So, there'll definitely oh, yeah, be more sure. about that. Mm. All right. Well, I want to hear what your cool idea is. So let's let's wind this up. Okay. Um, so that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. Uh, as always, if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is on Facebook. You can find us, the Canon Paradigm. There will be an album relating to this episode and you'll be able to go and look at pictures of anything that we spoke about specifically. And if you can, if you've got time and you like what you're hearing, please jump onto whatever subscription service you use to listen to us through, iTunes or what's the other one for Android that we use? Podcast Addict. Podcast Addict or whatever yeah. it is. If you can jump on with that and give us a, a rating, that would be super handy. Doing that really helps people who we can't just harass, hey, listen to our podcast, find us, and um, maybe learn a thing or two or just have some fun listening. That's it. Yeah. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs>